Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mames. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we will be featuring Renee Lamaris, and he'll be answering your most important questions on the Siberian Timon, the legend of Russia's rivers. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Renee a question, just go to our homepage, www.askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show, and we'll receive your questions immediately and try to answer as many of your questions live on the show as possible. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of the broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group being doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we will talk with Renee Lamaris about Siberian Timon. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in 3 through 6 weight. Then enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate the nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce Renee, we'd like to let you know about the great gift we have to give away tonight. For our drawing, Renee has been kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his book, Alaska Fishing, the Ultimate Angler's Guide. The book is the most comprehensive guide to fishing the 49th state out there now, and this deluxe full-color edition covers all of Alaska's species, methods, and waters with contributions from Alaska's top fishing experts. We'll also be giving away one year's subscription to Fly Fusion, Canada's premier fly fishing magazine. So if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Renee's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winner at the end of the show. Well, Renee Lamaris started out on the East Coast, and he picked up fly fishing at age 10. But he graduated from fishing for trout on Spring Creeks in Appalachia to the big waters and big country in Alaska in the 1970s. Once he was in the last American frontier, he guided on Lake Iliamna before establishing his guide service, Ultimate Rivers, in the 1980s. He first started fishing in Russia later in the 80s, and he since has led hundreds of trips to remote southeast Alaska and Russia's Far East since the early 90s. Renee has worn many hats thus far in his career. In addition to being an accomplished wilderness fishing guide, he's a photographer, outdoors author, editor, homesteader, and publisher. He lives near Anchorage, and his book, Alaska Fishing, The Ultimate Angler's Guide, now in its third edition, is considered by many to be the Bible on fishing the great frontier. His photography and articles have graced the major sporting magazines, and his seminars on fly fishing Alaska and Russia are in high demand. Tonight, we'll be hearing about some very exotic species of fish found in some incredibly remote parts of the world. 
It's all foreign to a lot of us, and Rene Lamaris is just the person to introduce us to this fascinating area. Welcome, Rene. Thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, I'm, it's a real pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you very much. Well, Rene, uh, you currently live and run your business from Chugiak, Alaska, which is just a few pine trees down from Anchorage, right? Right, correct. And why in the world would you go want to go to Russia? Aren't there enough big fish in Alaska to fish for? Well, this is true, um, <laughs> but uh, if, if as anyone has fished here in the last uh, five or ten years has noticed that uh, some of the, the better locations in Alaska are getting a little bit crowded, and um, We've always been interested in Russia simply because it was the last great place to go once once we got established in Alaska and got familiar with some of the, the better fishing locations in, in southwest Alaska and some of the more remote parts of the state. We were always interested in opening up the last final frontier, which, you know, to us here in Alaska is merely a hop step away, very close by air of travel. So it just was natural for us to develop and, and get over there and start to fish that region. So Alaska is no longer the last frontier, right? Well, it, I mean, it, it's all on your, you know, develop your your whole point of reference. I mean, for for people who may, you know, be familiar with this fishing in the urban landscapes and back east or, or, or those areas, and then of course Alaska and Canada would be, you know, just a whole another quantum leap beyond anything they can imagine. But um, you know, for for someone who's been fishing up here for a while, even for people from out of state who come up here regularly. Uh, they've noticed the change in, in some of the, the more um, popular locations. Just the amount of uh, use that has, has really increased over the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so. So, you know, for for all practical purposes, Siberia is the last final frontier for cold water uh, fishing. Well, let's uh, let's talk more about that. Why don't we, we first start talking about uh, Timon, the, the fish that we're, we're centered around here tonight, and then we'll move into the to a lot of other areas sure. that I know everybody's asked questions about. But let's, let's you know, just talk about the time in itself. And, and we did put a picture out on your uh, bio page on our website. So mm -hmm. if people want to go to Renee's bio page, they can see a picture of a time in. But why don't you go ahead, Renee, and describe what a time in looks like. Well, as you can imagine, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's got a, a classic trout shape um, with, the, with the only difference that um, – Generally, a lot of the, the, the fish you catch, the smaller fish, are a little bit longer for their size, uh, more elongate than you uh, than let's say a rainbow trout or a brown trout would be. Um, but uh, you know, we're basically talking about this, the classic uh, trout shape. Uh, it's got a, a very large mouth, very sleek, uh, slender body. It is a salmonid, so it has all the classical features that uh, salmon and trout have: uh, adipose fins, um, small scales. Um, it's got markings on it. Uh, coloration can vary uh, anywhere from a kind of a, 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 a kind of a tarnished silver to a bronze or even a greenish, uh, lighter on the belly, and markings very similar to a, a coho or a, a, a um, king salmon. Very sparse markings, uh, generally more on the upper body than lower body. Uh, yellowish eyes and a large uh, gaping mouth, larger than than any other um, fish than. than uh, other than, let's say, a northern pike, but uh, certainly a larger uh, mouth uh, than, let's say, of, of king salmon or a rainbow trout or brown trout. And, well, uh, Renee, we've, yeah. we've heard legends about the taimen. Can, right. can you give us a sense of how big they get and how long they live? Yeah, um, what, what makes uh, taimen so unusual is that they, um, they're extremely long-lived. They're one of the most long-lived of all freshwater uh, fish species. Um, they can live over 100 years. 
And uh, another interesting thing about the, the timing is that they keep growing uh, incrementally throughout their lifespan. There's no one period during their lives when they grow and they slow their growth at any period. As long as the food is available, they'll keep going, uh, growing throughout their lifespan. So um, you, they can achieve quite a large size. Um, uh, largest uh, recorded specimens have been over 200 pounds. The largest recorded specimen was 243 pounds taken to north central Siberia back in um, right after World War II. So they can uh, achieve a larger size than the other salmonid. What kind of lifespan then do they generally have? Uh, generally, if you if you catch uh, you know a trophy specimen, will be as old as you are or older. Wow. Uh, generally, so you, and it's easy to tangle with fish that are over 100 years old, and any fish that's over 100 pounds is typically, uh, depending on where you catch them, of course. Some some areas have uh, faster growth rates than others because of the amount of food available, but um, Generally, if you if you go trophy fishing and and hook like say uh, you know a sixty seventy pounder, um, that fish uh, will probably be older than you are. Wow. Well, well, how'd you know Don was a hundred years old? <laughs> 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 you said it was old as he was, and you said hundred. So I, you know, I didn't know he was a hundred, but with that white beard, you know, he kind yeah, right. Of, he might be. He might be. Well, what's yeah. the what's the average? You know, size of a time that you're catching. Uh, generally, you know, we we you know we fish over in the Russian Far East in an area that has a um, really good food supply compared to other parts of the range, and uh, average size uh, between twenty and thirty pounds is the average fish we catch. That's the and, average. Um, huh? Yeah. Wow. And what what is that in inches over there, so we can get an idea? Of- uh, gen- uh, anywhere from let's say uh, thirty six to uh, 40, 48 inches, forty two, forty eight inches. Mm-hmm. And, and a trophy then would be uh, something o- over that then. Over yeah, over four feet in length, and um, uh, you know anything uh, over sixty pounds would be a, a really good uh, fish. Wow. Do uh, we know any of the IGFA records uh, on timing? Most of the timing records uh, we set them early in our careers over there, and we were we weren't uh, concentrating on. Uh, we were just. Uh, interested in, in developing programs and so um you know to be quite honest with you even today um in the areas that we fish they're, they're uh, really challenging fly fishing conditions so um we had people who were interested in getting in a record book no matter what and so uh we had quite a few records set on uh, uh all tackle igfa all tackle we have the igfa all tackle record in several line classes and we do have some some tippet classes but most of the tippet classes um are still remain open um, and quite a few have been set in other parts of Russia by some other people's programs, but um, there's still lots of opportunity for folks who want to take the time and, and the, the discipline to um, to set uh, tippet class records for IGFA on, for Siberian timing. Well, uh, Rene, these uh, tell us a bit more about the timing itself. Uh, are these predators looking for meat? Um, do they take? Yeah, meat? they're really interesting fish, um, and they're they're the fish that, that kind of got the whole thing started for. Where people wanted to go over and fish those areas um, because of uh, the reports that had come in um, after World War II about these these giant fish. But basically, what they are is they're kind of a relic species. Um, back in the the evolution of uh, salmon and trout, um, they speculate that at one point uh, these these fish were the precursors of all salmon, trout, and char evolution. And due to the fact that uh, 
Siberia, unlike North America, had vast areas of it that were unscathed by, uh, by the glaciers during the, um, the last periods of glaciation. These fish uh, survived as a relic species. And um, so they're kind of like a prehistoric uh, progenitor of all the salmon and trout. And uh, so they, they have some features that, that are really uh, interesting in terms of their, you know, their behavior and, and, and the, way they, um, the way they eat and everything. But uh, primarily they're piscivores. When they get older, they, they concentrate on, on, on large fish. And um, the rivers of Siberia have a great diversity of, of bait species, white fish and uh, a lot, uh, quite a few species of white, in fact, more species of white fish in, in, uh, over there than in North America. Uh, species of carp-like fish. So there's, there's, there's all kinds of there's amazing diversity of bay fish over there. So they primarily live on on fish species. But as they get larger, uh, they've been known to take uh, ducks and and mammals and uh, uh, even according to legend, small children have been swallowed by these things. Uh, according to folklore over there. So, <laughs> so anyway, it's real interesting. But they, as they get larger, then their ability to eat other other um, things other than fish increases. The time in their life uh, span when they take insects. Uh... Uh, the small ones may do that, but they quickly. Uh, they're, they're just you know hardwired to, to to go after you know the bigger meals of in you know in the water column. So um, uh, the small ones will will take um, will take insects, and you can catch them a real small fish like uh, you know a foot or two or something in, in these areas where the where the small ones live. The you know, little time in nurseries. Uh, in the shallows of uh, small little creeks and stuff, but um, pretty much anything of any size is going to be uh, geared up to uh, to eat uh, fish, to devour mm-hmm. fish. So, are they primarily solitary individuals? Yeah, they are. When they get larger, they are. You will never encounter. They're very territorial. Um, the large, the really large ones. Uh, become extremely territorial to the point where um, if you were, say, fishing a river like the uh, the Yenisee River or the Lena River or some tributary of that, uh, and you got into a, a big hole or big area, that would typically be ruled by one large fish who might, you know, work an area, you know, about one or two or three or four miles or so of river, uh, and that would be his area. And so um, it, it's really interesting because the locals will actually, um, you know, after a while they identify these, these particular fish, they give them names, and uh, they live from, uh, you know, actually where, you know, situations where one, one guy's grandfather's been fishing this one particular fish and his dad fished it and he's fished it. No one's ever been able to land this thing because it just got so smart over a period of 120 years or whatever. Generations, yeah. Now, the, when you say, um, you know, the, do, they, do they consider that hole their home base? I know. You know well, they are, they are migratory, and, and, and I, 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 I shouldn't uh, make a, Listeners aware of the fact that there are, um, you know, uh, several species of thyme, and there's there's a sea run form, and uh, that goes out to sea. It's anadromous, um, and my my uh, my primary focus and most of my experience has been with the river resident form, which spends its entire life in in fresh water, and um, they are migratory, um, much like other salmonids, where um, d- depending on what time of year you fish from, they'll be located in certain areas. But they they do have a home stretch of water that they like to inhabit um, uh, when, during most of the year. Um, but they are, they do they do uh, move around though. They spawn and they're spring spawners, and and they do they they do move around according to where the food is located. Well, that's what I was kind of getting yeah, at. They right. got kind of on a home area where everybody knows they are, but they may go at night and and. Yeah, and, and, and that also depends on where, where you catch them. Now, for instance, we fish in the Russian Far East, uh, tributaries of the Lower Amur River, 
uh, and these timon are feeding um, uh, very heavily during the summer and fall months on, on chum salmon. Um, and so they're, they're going to be basically positioning themselves in the, in the lower parts of these tributaries to, to catch this uh, uh, annual run of salmon. Uh, the Amur River has the largest run of, uh, and the most prolonged run of, of, of chum salmon in the world. So these fish are going to move and position themselves to, to make themselves best able to catch these, these chums that come up. And, but if you go over to, like, say, the Yenisee River, the upper Yenisee, or some of these rivers where, where fish are, are more, more, um, uh, feeding on the, on the local forage, the, ba the bay fish and so forth, um, they'll, they'll be, tend to be a, a lot more, um, less mobile and they're, and they're, you know, and be found in one, one area, uh, than these fish that are basically, uh, more opportunists and, and feeding on, on a particularly, a particular uh, food source that's available and located, uh, you know, at some strategic area d during the, during the year, so. Well, with the different forms of of the time, and what is their total area of distribution? They're found um, from Eastern Europe, from the headwaters of the Danube River, and they're called Huchen over there. They've, and they've been fished uh, for, gen for for hundreds of years. The the Europeans there have a have a tradition, and they're highly regarded fish, even raised in hatcheries in that part of uh, Europe. And um, then they're found across Siberia into uh, Mongolian, northern China, and then there's a, a subspecies that's found even in North Korea, and then they're found the, along the coast of, um, uh, you know, from a Hokkaido down to northern Korea, Sakhalin Island, uh, there's, there's that sea run form. So there's essentially four, four major species. Uh, two of them, I believe, are sea run, and then uh, two, the Huchin and the Siberian time, which is found across Siberia. And the Siberian time, it gets a lot larger than the Huchin. The Huchin is where now? In Mongolia? It's found in Eastern Europe, yeah. Headwaters oh, of the Europe. Danube River and a few of the other rivers there. And uh, the Siberian time, because of the fact that, you know, it's found across Siberia and the, and the rivers. Now, the, you know, these, these fish are large main stem river habitat as their preferred uh, habitat. So, naturally, with the, the rivers of Siberia are, are so large that it, it offers them an opportunity to get uh, so much bigger and, and physical size because of the amount of food and forage and so they are, they're a lot larger, the Siberian tyrant, than, than the Huchin are. And they're, they're, they're slightly different. Uh, some of the physical characteristics are slightly different, too. Well. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard too much about people fishing yeah. those in, in, in Europe. I don't, yeah. Is it a sport fish there that's targeted? or is it Yes, they are. And they have been targeted for generations. And there's, there's a, you know, there's kind of like um, oh, a devout group of anglers, you know, these different angling clubs and so forth that pursue these hoochin and they have records and all this other stuff. And, uh, and they even have hatcheries, too. They, they regard them so highly that they, they have a fish propagation for them. When you mentioned a minute ago about the, um, the chum salmon, now I fished yeah. for chum up in Alaska. Right. The chum I was were catching were usually about uh, 10 to 12 pounds or so. Right, right. Is that the same size fish? that? Uh, they're, they're a little bit smaller on... Um, uh, on the Amur, they're about seven or eight pounds. That's still but, uh, a pretty still big that's, lunch. That's still a hefty <laughs> fish to, for for some other fish to swallow, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. It yeah. sure is. Sure is. Well, um, let's talk about the the early days and going over there because it it hasn't. You know, I mean, there's people my age, of course, can remember when you didn't go to Russia. Uh, right. You know, right. And, I remember uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, in fact, when I lived in Alaska, when I was a youth, uh, my father monitored uh, communications from the Russians and so forth. You know, it was all uh, during the, yeah, the Cold Cuban, War. you know, yep. uh, right. uh, 
uh, situation and so forth. So it was kind of quite tense when I lived in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. But how did how did you get started over there? How, what were the beginning days like? And, and tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it was real interesting. You know, naturally, uh, you know, growing up in the Cold War, like you, I, I had a tremendous curiosity to, uh, about the, the Soviet Union. It has a tremendous um, amount of mystery and mystique to associated to it. Uh, um, Russia does, and uh, so um, when when I you know got settled in Alaska, started fishing in Alaska, um, it was you know we were obviously a little bit closer to Russia. But um, the real break came um, back in the late 70s. Um, there were some some magazine art, excuse me, some newspaper articles that somehow leaked uh, out from uh, into some of the major West Coast newspapers about some some giant fish that some scientists were studying in northern China that came out right before earthquakes, and uh, they were. It sounded like a fable that that there were these some some remote lakes in northern China where these things came out before right before an earthquake, and they were. The article said they they were reported to reach lengths of 20 feet. And, you know, you're reading this article and you're going, what the heck is going on? I mean, this has got to be a hoax. And then, uh, sure enough, not too long after, there were some follow-ups to that article saying that uh, this, the, the researchers, these uh, scientists, Chinese scientists, said that these fish may be uh, some form of taimen, which were, you know, a, a group of, uh, you know, a salmon, part of the salmon trout um, char family that, that can reach lengths of, uh, you know, up to 9 or 10 feet. And so... You know, reading these other follow-up articles, it, it you know it was easy to surmise that there's these there were indeed some there was something going on over there. There was some fish that was really interesting and worth looking into. So um, uh, that article or some of those articles were were, draw, were uh, drawn up to my attention from uh, some of my buddies, uh, fly fishing buddies, and we we did some poking around, uh, contacted some some scientists, and found out that indeed there were some fish over there uh, that uh, were found only over there. That were uh, supposedly, you know, these members of the salmon trout family, and got up to be over 200 pounds. And uh, so, you know, our, our curiosity was really peaked. And at the same time that all this was going on, the Iron Curtain was starting to thaw out. Uh, a lot of things were going on with this. Uh, this, this was like in the, during the 80s. Uh, so, you know, things were looking a little bit more favorable toward toward some kind of a, a tourist effort, a sport fishing effort, and. Uh, concurrently, at the time, I was uh, getting involved just out of, out of you know my, my interest in fly fishing. A, f- a good friend of mine uh, was involved in international whitewater rafting competitions, uh, which are held all uh, annually all around the world in these prestigious uh, locations of uh, whitewater uh, rivers. And he got um, at one of the, some of the rallies they had in Central Asia. He got to know the Russian uh, rafting team and was able through his contacts here and through his. Um, you know, he knew. You know, he knew I was real interested in, in getting some some kind of a program, exploratory thing going over there. We were able to negotiate through the Soviet Peace Committee, which basically was a branch of the KGB. Uh, they were real interested in finding out what, what you know, they just couldn't believe that Americans would want to go over to Russia and just just sport fish. They thought there was some kind of ulterior motive. We were interested in looking at their military installations or something. But so. They, they put this, this first, these first uh, initial trips together just more out of curiosity to see if, if indeed we were, we were in, in earnest and we were just, would pay that kind of money. Clients, you know, Americans would pay that kind of money and go that far to just go after some will-o'-the-wisp called a, a, a time in it. So that's how the first trips came about. They were really, really uh, groundbreaking efforts. And uh, the Russians did all they could to, to provide us with a fantastic experience. And uh, we got to fish areas that, uh, 
no one had, had ever really fished before. They're very remote parts of Siberia. And, uh, so anyway, they, they were real, real special experiences for everyone involved, and they, they laid the groundwork then for, for our, our uh, you know, early time and program, sport fishing program. Renee, let's let's take a brief break here. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking more with Renee about the early days of fishing the Siberian Taiman. Front Range Anglers, a full-service fly shop located in Boulder, Colorado, provides premium tackle and comprehensive instruction and guide services to fly fishers across the country. In business for over 25 years and with a staff that averages 20 years of experience, they will give you the straight story on gear, places to fish, flies, and techniques. They publish a monthly newsletter that is one of the most informative and insightful electronic magazines in the industry. Find out more about this premier shop by logging onto their website at www.frontrangeanglers.com. That's frontrangeanglers.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Renee Lamaris about Siberian Timon, the legend of Russia's rivers. If you'd like to ask Renee a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, below the description of the show that says click here to ask Renee your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately and try to answer as many as your questions live on the show as possible. Uh, Renee, uh, could you give us just a little bit of uh, background information on your, uh, your business, your guide service, and contact information? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, name of my, uh, our, our company is Ultimate Rivers, and we're on the web at uh, ultimaterivers.com. And uh, we're, we're based out, out of here, out of Chugiak, which is north of Anchorage. And um, our scope of our uh, sport fishing operation uh, encompasses uh, most of southwest Alaska and uh, the Russian Far East. I do trips. Uh, we do the Siberian timer trips, and we also do trips for rainbow trout and on the Kamchatka Peninsula. And our phone number is uh, area code 907-688-6535. Great. Good, Renee. And you also, as we will talk about later, your book is available on Yeah, site. yeah, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, yeah, Alaska Fishing, the Ultimate Angler's Guide, yeah. Terrific, terrific. Yeah. And you've also got some articles on time in there and so forth that people right. read, which I yeah. think is uh, real interesting about the early days over there. Um, now, um so, so you got you got a kind of a door opened over there. Yeah, so right. Those, what were those early trips like? You know, they where were really, we talking about first of all in Russia. Yeah. How did you get there? Well, basically, uh, initially, you know, for those early trips, you had to fly to Moscow, and, and all the trips were based out of Moscow. And so, typically, East Coast people wouldn't have any trouble making a connection, like say JFK to Moscow. West Coast people would be a little bit longer to get there, but most of the trips were, were based out of Moscow, and we were we were fishing uh, Central Siberia, North, North Central Siberia, and um, you know basically we were just kind of just oh it was like sh- taking shots in the dark, you know we were just uh, going by the recommendations of our Russian contacts to what what would be the best areas to fish, and uh, quite often um, we came up. Um, Empty-handed sometimes in terms of their, or, you know the results weren't as, as as what we we had planned uh, in terms of sometimes we'd get the the timing wrong or the, the conditions weren't favorable for fishing and that sort of thing. But uh, so we were kind of just poking around uh, just different parts of Russia, trying to just go on hunches or what we had uh, talked to Russians about and gotten information from beforehand. So it was it was more hit or miss, and uh, until we finally got uh, you know. Be- 
settle into uh, the, the Russia, Russia's Far East, which is a lot closer for us, you know, which is right a few hours' flight across from Anchorage. Uh, and that worked out a, a, a lot better for us. The fishing was, was consistent. Uh, the level of services that we could we could provide people with was a lot more um, available. So um, it was just easier to do trips out of, of Russia's Far East and to go through Moscow. But initially, back in the old days of the Soviet Union, all the trips were, because they were handled, you know, everything was a lot more regulated than before things um, opened up over there. So they pretty much had to require that we we'd go through Moscow and everything was, was handled by the Soviet Peace Committee, and and once once Glasnost took over and things opened up, then things became a lot more um, uh, freer, and, and we were able to just you know travel a lot more easier through throughout Russia. So it worked mm-hmm. out a lot better that way. Well, and and c- could you maybe describe just a little bit uh, how the the trip runs uh, in these uh, days? Uh, since you don't have the KGB looking over your oh, shoulder. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's just a lot more. It, basically, what what we what we were able to do was is as as things opened up in Russia and a whole new breed of of of, uh, of young uh, uh, entrepreneurs developed through through the the onset of capitalism. Um, you know, as opposed to you know back in the old days, we were dealing with some of these. In fact, to be quite honest with you, the people that we did business with initially on those first trips were the same people that had been these same organizations that had been taking cosmonauts and military top rafts and all these other people out on the rivers and uh, haven't shown them a good time, uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, whereas as, as things moved on, we were able to connect with people who had legitimate um, enterprises, um, uh, young, very, very sharp people that we, were helped, we helped get set up in business. And in turn, they provided us with a real high level of quality and service. And so typically, um, our, our program is kind of a hybrid that kind of encompasses uh, some of the better, uh, best uh, features that we've developed in our uh, Southwest Alaska program with some of, the, some of the better features that we've found that the Russians have come up with. You know, the Russians have their own style of doing river trips, and some of the things about that style are very, very endearing. And very, very, uh, very efficient. So we stay with kind of make a hybrid program with with what they, what they have, and what uh, what we, we've able to, been able to bring through our uh, years of doing trips in Southwest Alaska. Well, now, uh, Renee is uh, we're talking about Eastern Siberia now is where you're doing your your trips, right? right? Russian Far East. Now that is just what the other side of Kamchatka, the, the Kamchatka Peninsula there. That's considered part of it, but basically uh, it, it, it encompasses Russia's Far East, encompasses everything from the Chinese border up to, um, you know, Anadar, up to the north, northeastern, you know, that, you know. In, in other words, it, it encompasses parts of Russia that aren't, wouldn't be considered Siberia. Um, okay. And so we do the time and shift based out of Avarsk, which is a city on the, um, on the, near the lower Amur River. So. And is that where you fly into initially? That's where you fly into, yeah, from the west coast. Yeah, you can fly in from the West Coast or from from Alaska. And what uh, what time of year is is best to go? Uh, and that, well, you, basically, you've got two the two best windows for fishing are in the spring or in the fall. And by spring, typically late May, June, or fall, which would be September, October, are the two best times to fish. Renee, can you give us a a bit of a rundown about how one might make travel arrangements and what kind of accommodations they have along the way? And yeah, yeah. Basically, um, you know, it, you know, uh, 
there are two two ways that go. The most direct route, of, I mean, for people on the West Coast, would be um, to fly uh, through uh, through Seoul, Korea, with and then make a, a, a connection. Uh, um, depending on when you leave, you can go without any layovers right through the Havar or Scum. And then uh, if you do have a layover, you, there, you know, it's, it's, you can have accommodations in either so, probably, uh, excuse me, Seoul, Korea for a, a night, if, if, depending, like I said, depending on what day you leave. Um, but there's two or three airlines that service uh, Seoul, Korea with connections to Havarsk. And Havarsk is about, oh, three hours from Seoul, two and a half, three hours from Seoul. So uh, typically you can, you can make that uh, connection without a layover. And then, Okay. And into Havaris, and then that's where we we basically we helicopter out of Havaris to to the headwaters of these rivers that we float and fish. Could you spell the name of that town? I, I'm not sure I'm hearing it well. Yeah, it's uh, it's K H A B A R O V S K. Kavarovsk is how they okay. pronounce it in Russian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Well, um, what kind of equipment then is is one bringing on a trip like this? In terms of fishing gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, you know, what, what we've discovered, found over the years is that, um, obviously the, these are not small fish, so, um, what it comes down to is, um, you want to bring, you know, the largest rod, single-handed rod you can comfortably fish with, you know, for, for an extended period of time, whether that is, a, you know, a 10, 11, or something, you know, depending on what your wrist size is and your strength, um, but it's quite, as, if you've, if you you know, throwing a big rod around for a while, you, you know how tiring that can be, a single-handed rod. So it's even better if people uh, get adept and at and bring uh, spay rods. Uh-huh. Most of our uh, most successful fishermen have 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 done, have have done used spay rods, simply because uh, depending on what time of year you fish um, and where you fish, of course, um, the spay rod gives you some, some real uh, great advantages to fish sure. time yeah. because it is big water fishing. What uh, kind of cost is is one looking at for a trip like this? Um, most of the trips that we we do are you know because of they're, they're expeditions, so um, they're generally uh, between nine and, and nine, ten, or twelve day expeditions, and uh, the cost varies anywhere from uh, you know thirty six hundred to forty five hundred dollars from from Russia. So okay, for those trips, yeah. So that's from Khabarovsk. From Khabarovsk, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That adds up uh, then by the time one travels, right? Or right. is it possible to catch uh, fair favorable fares for uh, flights over? Yeah, say? it is. You can, you can, you can. Um, you know, there's depending on when you buy the tickets and how you buy them. I mean, I've heard of guys getting tickets uh, from the West Coast to uh, ours for as low as like nine hundred dollars uh-huh. round trip. So um, you know, it depends on. on on when and, and how you buy the tickets, I suppose. They're, I mean, they're, you know, on the Internet and I mean, there's specials that come up and when you buy the tickets and the time of year you, you fly and everything like that. But uh, but typically, uh, you know, you'll be looking at anywhere from uh, 12 to, you know, $1,800 to get over there from the West Coast. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, when you're out in camp uh, and and on the expedition, what uh, what are the accommodations there? Basically, we we our our time and program, uh, you know, it depends on what river we're doing. But our but our classic uh, uh, time and program that we that we you know that we offer for people who don't have any special, you know, we have special rivers, you know, where we where we do exploratory trips and 
we have a tro trophy program, but um, basically um, what we've done is we, we've able to we're able to kind of uh, feature the best parts of a of a float trip with a with the stays at camps. We're basically you know we're floating down fishing, and then um, on the upper rivers, upper part of these rivers, and staying at these hunting camps. These are like prim these little log cabins and stuff, and then. Um, when we get down to uh, to a, we have a main base camp at the end of the trip. We 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 stay there for about four days and we we fish out of boats, uh, the lower part of the river. Be simply because when you get down to the lower parts of these uh, tributaries, uh, the the water becomes so large you you just really can't effectively fish it from raft. You have to have a a motor boat. So uh, we base uh, the last part of the trip we base out of these 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 comfortable this comfortable base camp and we. And we fish every day with boats, so so it's kind of an interesting kind of a, uh, a combi combination float trip, camping, uh, motor motorboat fishing trip. So that, that's a longer trip, or you know, our 12-day trip. Well, what's a what's a, a normal day like then? Once once you get you know you come in on the helicopter and um... yeah, we set up camp and uh, you know and float and uh, you know we don't do you know we do we you know guys fish out of the boats. Um, uh, we found that um, you know as soon as we get a, a, a good fish on, we're gonna we're, first thing we're gonna do is get a guy out on shore so we can play the fish on shore and then then just have the boat ready if it gets away from them. Uh, you know we'll we'll chase after it in, in the boat. But um, uh, generally, you know we're up up uh, early like about eight o'clock or so. The Russians do a real nice job on the camps. They set up all the camps and they do all the cooking and and after breakfast we get in the you know we have kind of a leisurely breakfast and. Uh, and then we get in the boats around a river by nine or ten, and we're floating and fishing. And then we break for lunch about one or so, and have a real nice lunch. And then uh, typically we're off the river by five, set so up evening camp by about five. And uh, people can fish in the evenings. We always set up camp in a good area to fish. So um, there's a lot of fishing time for folks on those trips. And we had a, a question here, Renee, from um, Bob in Chicago. He said he'd like to hear more about Russia. Do you? You actually have much contact with the local citizens. Uh, you did mention the guides are Russian, correct? Yeah, we all we use all Russian guides, and um, and part of the trip, um, you know, after we get done with the with the fishing part of the trip, we we spend some time uh, just showing people what the Russian culture is like, and um, you know, we give keep people a chance to experience uh, some of the big city culture there. We do spend um, a day in Havarsk, uh, touring the local museums and and uh, art art. Uh, uh, gift shops and so forth, so people get a chance to see what that's like, and we, and we take them to a real nice restaurant in town. But uh, you know, we do spend a lot of time then out in these villages, which to me is what the real Russian culture is all about. You get a chance to meet with the, the people who live out in the country and see how they they all grow their own food, and uh, and they're real hospitable, and they they just we just have a really good time and um, just show people a lot of it, real real interesting things, you know. Sure. So, so are, are there any seasons that you just absolutely don't go? Well, you know, we fished up until late fall, and uh, even in, and we fish for them in the when there's snow when the snow's on the ground. But it, it's it's you know the limitations are similar to that in a, you know fishing in Alaska. I mean, you reach a point where um, you know it's kind of diminishing returns. Uh, you get you know. I don't know if you guys have been on any real late season trips up here, but um, <laughs> the mornings keep getting longer and longer around the fire in the morning. The colder it gets because guys are warming, warming their toes up, and they, you reach a point where you're not doing a lot of fishing. You're spending most of the time just you know, in camp. So um, yeah, I, I would basically, you know, we, we we just don't. We pretty much end our season at the end of October. So 
Um, and that. what's the best time of year to go? Um, that depends. You know, they, uh, they, they're spring spawners, and so one of the advantages about fishing in the spring is that you're able to find them right after they spawn. They're concentrated in, in these, these tributaries. And so that's one of the few times in a year when, when you actually have a chance of, of hooking, you know, a lot of big, a lot of big fish. Um, if you fish uh, during the summer months or at other times of year, um, they, the, the larger fish are real territorial and, and are more spread out. So it's not, it's never, it's never really been a numbers game in terms of big fish, but um, your chances of hooking a, a lot, a lot more fish, big, big, big fish are, are definitely greater during the spring, like May and June. But the problem with May and June, of course, is is the water levels. You can get to fluctuating water levels because of runoff. So it's much the same as fishing doing an early season trout trip here in Alaska. You've got, you know, you've got the possibility of some really great fishing, but then, you know, depending on what kind of spring you have and how much snowpack, um, you know, the water water conditions can make it really difficult to fish. So. Now fall is another good time to fish too. Um, from late August into into October is another really good time to fish. Um, a lot of big fish are taken then. Their fish are starting obviously to, to get ready for winter, so they, they're taking on a lot more food and they're a lot more aggressive. So that's you know, and it's also a real pretty time of year to be out fishing. So that's that's always been my favorite time to fish is in the fall. Okay. Well, let's let's take just a very brief break, and when we return, we'll be. Uh, answering more of your questions about the fly fishing trips for Siberian Timon, the world's largest trout. Jaeger's Fly Shop is your sponsor for this segment of our show. Been online since 1998. Tim and Deb Jaeger operate their brick-and-mortar shop in Lawrence, Kansas, loaded with the best brands such as Sage, Scott, Ross, Sims, and much more. Nestled in the heart of Big Bass Country, Jaeger's offers a full-line pro shop and guide service where you can enjoy the beautiful Kansas Flint Hills and catch trophy bass. Tim and Deb offer the friendliest of customer service whether you walk in the door or order online. Place your order on their fully secured website and it usually ships the same day. Mention this ad and receive 10% off your next web order. You can reach Jaeger's toll-free at 866-359-7467. That's 866-359-7467. Or on the web at www.jaegersflies.com. Jaegersflies.com. And you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Renee Lameras about Siberian Timon. You can ask Renee a question by going to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and clicking on the link below the description of the show. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we're trying to answer as many questions live on the show as possible. Well, Renee, let's get into the more into the equipment. You started to talk about the, the size rods and so forth. Can you talk about what you use for a line and, and leader setup when you're fishing for the time? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I wanted to just kind of just mention that uh, you know there are two basic uh, methods of fishing for these things in terms of your presentation, and uh, you know we do we do take them on the surface, and we also do uh, most of our fishing is below surface. And um, naturally, you know depending on what method you you know how you're going to go after them to determine your setup. But for typically for a surface presentations, um, you'd be using a, 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 a performance taper floating line. Uh, depending on whether you're using a single-handed or a spay rod, and um, you have to use a, a real, real, real stout um, uh, leader and, and tippet um, 
and since they have two rows of teeth, sharp teeth, uh, almost all our fishing we do is with wire leaders. And um, and if you're going to go for an IGFA record, then then you, there's a real specific setup you'd want you want to use for to ensure that your tippet uh, class isn't uh, uh, is still valid. Um, but generally, um, we would use uh, wire wire leaders uh, uh, with a t tied into uh, like a, a, a I, I use 50 pound maxima uh, for my butt section. You want to use a, a real strong, uh, very hard uh, mono leader, whatever whatever brand you use. Um, it's one of the reasons is not, not just for the, the the fact that the timon have uh, these sharp teeth, but um, this kind of fishing is really you know we're fishing in rocks. It's really rough on the line, so um, you want to use a really hard, stiff uh, um, mono for your butt section. Um, typically. Uh, Fly, some of the fly patterns we use are, are you know, we started out using uh, for our surface presentations. It was kind of funny. We had uh, the Russian. I need to back up a bit and talk a little bit about how the Russians fish from because it is kind of interesting. But um, typically, um, Russians have a tradition of fishing these things with uh, uh, surface presentations, uh, not not so much on fly fly rods, but uh, on, on these real primitive uh, spinning rods. And what they'll do is uh, generally use a um, Carve a plug, a big surface plug, or, or tie something uh, out of leather to imitate a, a muskrat or something on the, on the surface of the water. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and then cast this big thing out, and they fish for them at night, late at night, in the dark. Um, no, no self-respecting Russian would, would fish for them during the day. And um, uh, quite typically, when I say late, I mean like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, sitting around the campfire when you're ready to go to sleep. After endless rounds of vodka, they'll announce that it's fish for time, and then and then you file it, you know, go single file down into the river, and you'll get in this boat. And they usually want really long, tippy boats, are about 24 feet long, so you have to kind of just hang on there, and they'll get you down to some spot on the river, some gravel bar or something like that, and some point in the river, and you'll get out, and they won't let let you use any flashlights. No lights are allowed. Because uh, the time in our the big time in our real light sensitive and, and they do come out in the evenings at night. You can hear these fish splashing in the shallows. It's really something to be on these rivers. It's real exciting, almost spooky sometimes too. Uh, and so, taking from that tradition, trying to, to develop a, some kind of a um, methodology for fly fishing, we we tried to uh, started fishing with these large uh, surface patterns um, to imitate the rodents and stuff, and um, I kind of came from this mentality that larger was the better, so I would actually get these things like squirrel, or little little squirrel skins from up here, <laughs> red, red squirrel and even weasels, and skin them out and, and tie these monstrous creations, which um, were very effective in terms of, you know, what they were trying to imitate, but they were impossible to cast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Um, we have since gone uh, kind of downsized everything and had a lot of luck with uh, with articulated leech patterns for subsurface patterns and also for 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 our surface patterns using a kind of a, a lemming uh, a much more tamed down version. I, I have some of the original uh, things we tied on 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 the wall on the wall and I, I should get a picture because it's really amazing some of the first <laughs> patterns we they're like nightmares creations you know but. 
So, you know, they were fished one, maybe once or twice, and we realized that, that it just wasn't going to work. You can't, you can't cast these things, especially at nighttime. You know, it's suicide to have this big thing whizzing through the air, you know, on a, with a six-odd hook. Uh, sure. <laughs> dark. Um, so, you know, what I would say to folks is, um, you know, you can, you can use, if you've got setups that uh, you've used for, like, say, um, oh, uh, you know, salt, well, some of your saltwater setups would certainly work over, over in Russia for time, and, um, like a tarpon setup or something like that, you know, rod, tarpon rod. Yeah. Although, like, I did, I, I, like, I did stress that, um, because of, uh, you know, the difficulty of, of casting repeatedly with, with a real large single-handed rod that, uh, uh, we've seen guys with, who can spay, spay cast do a lot better over there uh, with spay rods simply because they can they can work the rods, work the water a lot better than they can with a single-handed rod. Sure. Um, well, you're fishing generally big water. And big water. I'm, it's big I'm water guessing, fishing. Yep. I'm guessing there's a, a lot of vegetation along the banks, so it's probably a pretty ideal setup for spay, it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and in a lot a lot of spots that we're fishing, yeah, that's correct. And that, that's one of the big advantages of spay rods is you can do a roll cast and get out without the back cast. Yeah. And so um, we, we, you know, I, I, I've been on lots of trips where the guys with the spay rods are the only guys who can fish a stretch of water um, effectively. So... You know, there's, there's some real advantages to uh, to using the spay rods, and um, another nice thing about the spay rod is your line control too. You have much mm -hmm. better line control with the longer longer spay rod. So yeah. uh, there's some real advantages to that. Um, so you know, I, I you know what I try to do recommend to folks. You, you know, more and more guys are getting into spay spay fishing, but um, you know, I, I would highly recommend anyone who was who was planning to to really go after time and the, to uh, to to practice. You know, get a spay rod and practice or space spay fishing. Eleven to thirteen weights would be the size I'd recommend uh -huh. for for time and fishing. Yeah. Okay. Well, Renee, the uh, wait, Josh Parks in West Virginia asks, um, you know, what are your favorite flies for time and what size do you tie them in? You, yeah, they're um, real big at first, but. Yeah, we we we've tamed it down now to uh, to basically um, we use like a six odd gamakatsu, and we um, some of my my lemming patterns uh, tied with uh, with rabbit fur or or bucktail or or I I you tied on like tandem using a tandem hook setup, but a lot of single hook uh, flies, um, articulated leeches. Uh, Another fly that works really well is a, a real large, oversized uh, deceiver. Works really good. Uh, that's another really good pattern. But generally, um, anything that's you know, you, since you know, you're, you're, what you're trying to do is imitate a large forage fish, so or a rodent. So, uh, depending on, on what your you, you know your strategy is, whether you're going to fish surface or a subsurface presentation, um, you'll want to basically tie something that either imitates a fish or a, a rodent. Um, I know in, in Mongolia that the, some of the operators over there use this uh, kind of thing that imitates a, um, I think it's a ground score or something like that. Um, but the, pro the problem that there, it, 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 like, like I mentioned earlier, is that you, you know, the, the larger flies get really, especially when they're wet, get really difficult to, to pick up off the water and cast. So um, you want to just kind of just, you know, keep that in mind when, before your imagination runs wild with the, on your on the fly time bench that you got to cast this thing when it's wet and in the dark too. So, yeah. 
That's, uh, that's impressive. Well, in terms of uh, going after these fish, is there any, any real constant in terms of the type of water that they hold in or that you're working? Well, you know, depending on when you fish, uh, you know, if you do fish in the spring, then they're going to be found shallow in these tributaries. But generally, you know, during the summer and fall, um, they're going to be in, you know, and you're associated with large main stem river habitat. And so, and depending on where you're fishing, of course, now, you, you know, we're refishing in, uh, in these rivers along the Far East, and this would certainly hold true for the sea run time as well, is that these fish are basically, you know, in these rivers, and they're going to feed on these anadromous fish species. So, they're going to position themselves, you know, at the mouth of these tributaries, any areas where these, that, you know, that provide natural ambush sites for, for them, you know. But um, when when we're doing, like, say, a, 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 typical, a typical float trip, um, when we put them up on top in the shallower waters, um, you do encounter uh, fish up there, but uh, they're few and far between them, generally not as large as the fish that are found down below. And... Um, so you're you're always looking toward the larger kind of main stem river habitat, uh, brush piles and, and holes, any areas that uh, you know would provide the, the kind of cover they need because they are they work best as ambush predators. And then of course when you fish them at night, then um, uh, during the night they they will, they will they can be found anywhere in the shallows. You, know, you can hear them splashing around, chasing schools of fish up into the shallows. So. Um, Generally, you know, basically what you do is you go locate, you know, yourself in an area where they're found, of course, but also down in a larger main stem habitat where the really big fish are found. And then depending on when you want to fish them, uh, like I said, if you fish them at night, uh, the, the big fish uh, can, be, can be found just about anywhere. But um, they are light sensitive. So, you know, we've had good luck on cloudy days early in the morning fishing some of the deeper uh, lies. Um, where normally, you know, if, if it was a bright sunny day, you wouldn't you wouldn't be fishing. But you you know, later on in the in the late summer, early fall, on cloudy, uh, overcast or rainy days, uh, early in the morning, late in the evening, you can do well in some of these uh, more traditional areas. Well, when you when you're taking a, a group over there and guiding them, right? Um, you said normally your your day was kind of banker's hours out there, um, right. but so during the day you're catching fish, but those are the smaller fish then? Yeah, quite typically, you know, uh, during the course of, a, of like, say, a day floating um, fishing, um, you know, you've got guys catching, you know, 20, 30-pounders, maybe a 40 or 50-pounder. But, you know, it's, it's generally understood that unless you, you know, make an effort, like when we get down to the bottom of the rivers, we, let's say on that, on that trip I was describing where we fish out of that base camp in the morning, you know, when we get down to the bottom of the river to the really big, big uh, water, we'll be getting, getting up really early and going to some of these areas that the Russians know these big fish are hanging out in. Or we'll, we'll set a, you know, let the people know that, you know, we're going to be go, we're going to go fishing late that night. So then we might let guys sleep in that morning, okay? If we know, if we're going to plan on fishing late that night, because we know the guys are going to be up late that night. So we kind of plan our strategy to, to give them at least, you know, two nights of fishing, you know, night fishing, and then also hit, hit it, hit early in the morning as well. And then if they want to fish during the day, depending on what the weather is, if it's a cloudy, overcast day, they can. And you can you can always catch smaller time and during the day. But typically, you know, the, the larger fish, um, you know, are fished either at night or, or early in the morning or late late in the evening. So, does it end up being uh, sight fishing at all, or mainly? It can are you be. Working? It can be on on the upper part of the rivers, or if you fish in the springtime, 
you can actually see these timing. But, you know, you have to be very careful. They're, they're real spooky. Um, and depending on, on, on where you're fishing and, and what the light is doing, you know, um, you know, you, you can actually sight fish these things. And that's really exciting when you, when you can sight fish these things, you know. To see this thing come after your lure, I mean, it's just the most astounding thing. I mean, if you think a northern pike is, is something that to, to, to watch go after a, a hungry time, and it's, it's, it's just it's just it's awe-inspiring to watch these things go after a lure or a fly. It's just uh, <laughs> it's really something. But um, you know, typically most of your most of the time you are not you are not sight fishing. But you know, on certain conditions, if you fish in the spring or um, in the headwaters and the upper rivers for some of the smaller fish, you can you can definitely sight fish them. But typically, most of the time, the bigger fish you won't be sight fishing. You know, you won't be able to see them. Okay. Now I have a question here that I'm going to have to quote, and uh, I'll let you uh, gauge your answer. You might even know this person. Okay. Lena Ivanova. Okay. Asks, do they really pull you out of the boat on a dark fall night? And is it like offering your throat to the Tuval wolf? <laughs> I don't know who that person is who who uh, asked that question, but um, that obviously is someone who um, who has been fishing with with us who asked that question, and uh, uh, that's kind of a loaded question, and I I, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm at liberty to to answer that here uh, within the context of. Uh, of an internet interview, I could get in trouble, but uh, with some of the language I'd have to use to describe I that. See. But, uh, anyway, that's that's. Uh, we'll just we'll just go on to the next question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, why don't you talk, Renee, a bit about the the presentation strategies then that you use? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, like I said, your your two your two uh, your two options of the fish form are we're either going to fish form on the surface, and that's done all. You know, during the lowest part, uh, light, light part of the day, like uh, late evening, early morning, and nighttime, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't waste your time doing a surface presentation uh, in the middle of the day. You just, you know, you might catch some smaller fish, but in terms of the larger fish, they, they just wouldn't be active. They just wouldn't be out um, during the bright part of the day. And so, you know, basically. Um, uh, <laughs> Quite often, uh, you know, you may you may have to make a long cast, but generally you're not going to be casting that far. Um, for, you know, if you're fishing in the dark, uh, you're going to try to be real quiet and real careful and not spook any fish. And uh, uh, quite often you're going to be in areas where you can actually hear this thing uh, in the shallows. And it can get really, really spooky because you don't want to scare the fish away and your heart's pounding and you're real nervous and you're casting in the dark. And that's not an easy thing to do. Um, so, you know, one of the things I would recommend, uh, to anyone who, um, who wanted to go after time and big, the really big ones is to, is to practice ca uh, casting a, a, a good sized fly in the dark to where you know and get a sense of what, what your fly is doing because you will get absolutely, you know, it's pitch black, can't use any flashlights, so you're not going to get any visual cues. And so just, just from the standpoint of safety, uh, you might want to go and, uh, practice casting in the middle of the night just just so you know what the uh, and also also just to, to help in your presentation to get to get within range of, of a, let's say if you if you, you typically you're going to be out on the end of a gravel bar or maybe even off the end of the boat a boat and your Russian guy is going to basically put you in within range of, of a fish that you're going to hear splashing out there and so um, 
it really helps if you've got some sense of where you're casting and 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 have some some ability to to cast uh, you know with with some with some kind of accuracy. You're not going to have the accuracy you're going to have during the day, but at least uh, you want to be able to cast with some kind of accuracy and also not hook yourself um, on your back cast too. So mm-hmm. that's real important. Yeah. And then um, on your subsurface presentations, it would be much the same as as dredging for kings or something up here in Alaska. You know, it's it's basically going to be a you know like a a, a duck and chuck uh, using real heavy lines, um, typically uh, you know 600 grain lines or more. Um, so it's it's not, there's, there's going to be nothing graceful about about fishing the subsurface presentations, um, and typically um, much the same as as fishing for kings. You're going to be fishing right along bottom, uh, some of the real deep holes, and using a, a, a real lively short strip. And um, bringing it in, and um, not—we're not talking, you know, obviously about making any real long casts with, with a setup like that. But, uh, sure. You know, it's just a there's, no, there's not, not a real finessful way of fishing, but um, obviously that's that's what it takes to get down in these deeper holes and, and lies where the, the big ones are found. Well, Brendan in Seattle is wondering: uh, Do these fish uh, just attack your your? Fly without hesitation, or do they, roil, you know, roll and and boil on it, or what's what's their yeah? Uh, that's, that's a real interesting question because um, uh, when we first started fishing them over there, um, we were real quick on the take, you know, uh, like it would be if you were fishing uh, any other fish species over here. But qu- quite typically, they'll come up and they'll they'll st- uh, kind of circle the. The, the, if you're fishing subsur- on the surface and, and is, I'll even uh, slap the thing with their tail to just kind of make sure that you know that you know sometimes especially if you're if you're fishing a real big presentation or some something you've tied yourself um, uh, it, it it just moves through the water and makes a sound that that attracts them but it's be un, you know quite unlike or not not exactly like you know. The same sounds, the chortling sounds that, like, say, a drowning muskrat would make. So they're curious, they're real interested, but they'll come up, circle it sometimes, or slap it with their tail. So, um, you know, it, it's real, really, really um, uh, difficult from, you know, you're fishing in the dark or whatever to uh, to know when, when it, you know, when you've got a, a, a take or not, a, a grab. But uh, you'll you'll know when when that fish grabs it and, and when it's time to set the hook. But uh, my my advice to to guys who are just fishing is just to hold off if you can and, and let the uh, let the guide tell you when to set the hook. The guide will know. We need to take a little break again here, Renee. Uh, when we return, uh, we're going to talk with Renee more about you know what how, how to get that fish on the hook and and what what a fight with the timing is like. So uh, we'll be back in just a second. Matt and his crew at Dry Fly Outfitters offer a wide range of fly fishing products no matter what type of fish you're after. Whether you're looking for items for your great fishing trip or river flows or just some fly fishing information, Dry Fly Outfitters has you covered. While at their site, stop by and take a look at the World of Fly Fishing blog. There you'll find many articles and tips on fly fishing. Check out Dry Fly Outfitters now and keep checking back as they add more new items and services. You can reach Matt and the crew at www.dryflyoutfitters, all one word, dot com. 
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Renee Lamares about Siberian Tymon, the legend of Russia's rivers. If you'd like to ask Renee a question, go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Renee your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show uh, live as we can. Well, Renee, um, let's say that uh, that they've, they've, we've finally located a big timon, and he's taken a, a look, and he's taken a hit, and we've, we've hooked him up. What's it like? What's it like fighting a timon? How do they react? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is he's going to bolt out into the main channel. And that's where you really got to either hold on or, or be prepared to chase him. And this is where mostly your big fish are lost. Um, I could tell you stories going on and on, but uh, we've, we've been, you know, um, out there many times uh, at, late at night and uh, just casually uh, picked up a rod or something and, and just cast it out into a pool and hooked a, a big fish just by, by pure chance. And um, quite a few of them uh, in, the, in that first minute or so have been lost simply because um, they head out in the main channel. Um, and, you know, since the rivers we fish do have a lot of current um, and lots of water, um, they can get away from you in, in, in no time if you don't have a boat to chase them in. Um, this is another reason why we, we, we made our program to where we, we ended the last four or five days of the trip we, we spend at a base camp and we've got a motorboat to fish them simply because um, it really helps to have um, a boat to chase chase a fish that gets away from you. Once they get into the main channel, um, you know, they're real masters at using their, their body length. Uh, Timon, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the broadcast, are uh, uh, longer for their size um, than, than salmon or trout. So typically a large fish, you know, five or six feet long is, is going to have a real advantage in, in using its body in, in that strong current to, to produce an almost unbearable amount of drag on your, on your reel and rod. And so um, they're, they're, you know, the, like I said, the, the chances of you getting a really big fish in from shore um, without some kind of boat to chase them initially uh, are, are real slim. Uh, unless you're in an area where you can chase them down river on, on a large, you know, unrestricted gravel bar and so forth. But um, after that, those initial runs in the main channel, then um, you'll be able to work them into, a, hopefully, work them into a shallow or, or quieter section of, of the river. And then um, a lot of times they'll, they'll jump after that first initial run. Comes, they'll come straight out of the water when they're hooked. Uh, sometimes, but but generally they'll 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 make a first initial run and then they'll do some jumps, um, and then um, a lot of times uh, they'll roll themselves up in the leader, and then and then they'll come you know jumping uh, out of the water and uh, uh, quite often uh, if, if if you're fishing a wire leader they'll roll the, themselves up in in the wire leader and then uh, cut cut your your uh, line with with their mouth. Um, so we a lot of fish are lost that way, and then the hardest part is, is you know, if you're doing a, a uh, trying to uh, to set an IGFA record, you can't you can't um, use any method of like you can't gas a fish. You, you have to be real, you know, the real real the real particular in, in the methods you use to land the fish to qualify for an IGFA record, and so um, it becomes real problematic when you get a really big fish in the shallows because. They're never quite spent. These fish are smart enough to save enough energy to even 
uh, to fool you to think that, uh, you know, that you've got this fish that's spent, but they, they save enough energy to make an initial uh, last uh, uh, gasp uh, a chance at the getting, you know, getting themselves free. And so um, they're, just, they're not easy fish at all to deal with. Um, and we found a lot, a lot of fishermen are just not used to the tactics of, uh, you know, these people come with a fishing uh, salmon or, or trout. Now, now, salmon, if you fish salmon a lot, you know, salmon, especially a big king, can be a real, a real challenge, but they're not cunning in the sense that these timing are, these, 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 these timing are calculating and cunning, and they almost wait for you to, to uh, make a mistake, and then um, quite typically this happens at the end of the fight when you've got them, uh, you lead them into the shallows, and you're kind of cornering this fish, uh, to, uh, two or three guys will work around the back and, and try to herd this fish into the shallows while the, while the angler is backing up on the bank, and, and then, uh, Quite often, right at the end, this you know this thing erupts and and sh- you know shoots out like a like an alligator, and one of the guys you know dives after this thing and he's rolling around in the shallows with this thing. It's like a, it's like a gator and uh, wow. Um, yeah, it's just really difficult. A lot of big. Uh, there's been a lot of heartbreaking moments. I I personally have guided guys who um, have tried tried for real light tippet class records, like on eight pound or a tippet like that, or light or even lighter and I mean, here you are, this this fish, you know, 60, 70 pounds in the shallows, and, you know, it's got the leader wrapped around, you know, three or four times because it's been, you know, just fighting like a like a tarpon out there, and, and then um, it's in the shallows, and, you know, it looks like it's whooped, but I know, you know, that this thing is just saving something for the very end, and it's going to wait until you, you know, try to herd this thing up on the, up on the bank, and then it's going to... You know, all hell breaks loose, and quite often the fish is lost at that point, which is a heartbreak after after a long uh, battle. And the guy the sure. has, has has gone to that point, and and then you know lose the fish right at the end like that. But if you're going for a, a line class record, you can't can't use yep. the gas. Now the Russians would just shoot the timing. That's how they perform. <laughs> they would just shoot this thing when it when it jumps the first time or second time. They would shoot it, and that would be the end of it. But um. Obviously, you know that's not a sporting method of, of fishing, and the IGFA won't buy a, buy buy that. Sure. Oh, <laughs> no. Now, so. <laughs> when they make that first big run and, yeah. and hit the the main current, yeah. Can you can you give us some tips in terms of uh, rod handling or reeling techniques to to manage that? Oh gosh, you know the only thing I can think of is he, you know. <laughs> Have a really good reel with your drag set as tight as you can, and 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 run like hell or get in a boat. I mean, there's really, um, there's really not much else you can do. We we've had fish um, spools in 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 matter of like 40 or 50 seconds. Uh, uh, I I remember um, uh, one time on uh, on a gravel bar, um, we hooked uh, one of the guys hooked a fish, and uh, you know, and he had a real really stout setup. Um, Oh, he was fishing. Uh, I forget what. I mean, like eleven weight rod or twelve weight rod or something. And you know, the guy had a lot of experience fishing muskies. He was from the Midwest. The guy was just. And I was I was up on the um, on a bluff watching this thing. And um, this thing took off uh, uh, in, in just twenty or thirty seconds. That was all the guy had. And uh, 
you know, we were we were in wraps, and you know, by the time, you know, we were, I think we had we had stopped for lunch or something, and so by the time we, uh, the guys had scrambled to get in the boat, and it was, and he was holding the rod up trying to, and it was he was in a in a in a in, a, in an area where it just wasn't possible to run, to pursue this thing down river on foot, so. But it was really something to see this thing from up on top, and, and I saw this his roll, at, you know, when it got down about, uh, you know, 60 yards down below him, and uh, you know, he just he just didn't have a prayer with this thing. It was just it was just so big and in that current. So it's a real challenge on 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 fly fishing uh, for fly fishermen. It's a real challenge. Um, what are what are your actual chances of, of new person? Well, going landing a big fish, time? you know, I I would put. Uh, uh, the, the odds. Even landing uh, a small one like a 30, 40 pounder. No, the odds are really good. We have people all the time. You know, just about everyone who goes over there catches some nice fish. You know, up to 50, 60 pounds. Some really, really pretty fish, and and they get a real chance, a, a taste of what these fish can do. But nearly everyone has, or at least is around to see. You know the, the the big one that gets away. You know they have this brush with this with this monster. You know, and it can it can happen at, late at night. It can happen in the morning. Hell, it can happen even in the in the middle of the day. I, I remember one time we were we were fishing uh, on a float trip, and we had floated and, and it had been really slow fishing all morning, and we were floating through this this basically what it was was a swamp, and um, this guy was was uh, you know I, I don't know he was I was asleep rowing. I was just about falling asleep because it was hot. It was in June. And uh, we were passing by this, this tributary that came in, and all of a sudden this fish took his fly and came straight out of the water like like Godzilla, and it just scared the living crap. It was about, you know, three feet off the bow of the boat, and uh, it was just so unexpected, you know. And um, But it was during right in the middle of the day, you know. It, it can happen any time. And um, so, I mean, everyone, you know. You know, the everybody's going to get a fish over there of some kind. It's not. Uh, yeah, no, it, but in terms of, of of a trophy of a real, a really a big time, and um, you know, to be quite honest with you, on a fly rod, um, the the odds are so in that fish to savor. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's associated, you know, the water that we fish with the, with the current, and the and and the um, being on, on these big rivers. Um, yeah, it's it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. So would you say that if you had some saltwater experience with big fish, that's going to be helpful? Oh, it definitely would be in your favor, absolutely. Absolutely in your favor. If you were a tarpon fisherman um, and you were used to, to tangling with really big fish, um, the odds would definitely would, would be great, vastly improved for your um, uh, landing a really big fish. Or if you wanted, if you weren't going for, you know, the thing is that, we, you know, we, we've got catch and release uh, policy on all the really large fish. For obvious reasons, um, but if you if you know if if you were fishing wanting to fish like the Russians using and you wanted to use a gaff or whatever like that you know like you know, as, as I said earlier that a lot of fish are lost right at the the last part of the battle um, because these are they're these are not it's not like fishing a, a uh, any other fish you know these fish especially the really big ones are really smart they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gotten to where they are if they were dumb so. Um, they're, they're, they have a cunning to them that no other fish I've ever encountered has. So, um, you know, just because you've got this fish out of the main channel and he looks like he's tiring and you got him in the shallows, you know, I've learned from experience that, you know, the battle is far from over, you know. Right, right. So, well, um, uh, Renee, Larry uh, Edens in New Mexico asks, 
Since time and get to be very old, hence large, does catching and releasing them affect them negatively at all, like their migration patterns, spawning, and how sensitive they are to catch and release, I guess, is what he's asking. Yeah, well, we found them to be really tough. Really um, tough. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we initially, you know, the first, um, in the early years, you know, we were, we were basically, you know, letting the Russians do everything, and so, you know, the Russians were real rough with those fish. Um, you know, we caught some, uh, well, the first uh, really big one we caught, a 76-pounder that uh, my partner caught, Goo caught, they they wanted to weigh the thing, and we hadn't figured out how to, you know, now we've got a, a, a thing where you use a sling and just basically, you know, put the fish in the sling in the water, lift it up for, you know, a couple seconds. Like they do tarpon, and let it go. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, initially we had this thing, uh, and this Russian set up a tripod with these with these oars, and we had this big commercial scale, and we put the thing, you know, underneath the gill and, and weighed this thing, and it was out of the water for, like, you know, 10 minutes. All these photos were taken, and, mm-hmm. and the thing did not die, you know. I think these fish are incredibly strong and very very tough, very hardy, but at the same time, you know, any time you, you, uh, you know, catch a fish and tire it out like that, you, you know, you have to be really, really mindful of just, you know, what, uh, you know, after you've revived and let it go, you know, you got to be really careful not not to let it go in an area where it's going to be stressed out. Just trying to maintain its position, so you want to let it go. And so we, we 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 take great pains to um, to minimize our impact on these on these fish. Uh, but but knowing that you know that you know you could conceivably you know stress a fish out to the point where it just can't you know you could deplete a fish to the point where it just can't can't make it. Doesn't have the reserves to bounce back, but we have never, ever seen a fish uh, die that we've released from uh, from our, our, you know, fly fishing program, catch and release, um, you know, unlike fishing, you know, I fish rainbows a lot, and, and I've, I've seen rainbows just die, they fight so hard, they just die, they've, they right, don't, right. they've fought so hard, they have absolutely nothing left, and, and you have a dead fish, um, that doesn't happen very often, but I have seen it, but... Um, Never seen it happen with time, and I think they're really tough, really hardy. Are there any kind of um, uh, conservation efforts being uh, you know, looked, uh, done over there in respect to building the numbers of time in and or uh, keeping what's there there? Yeah, there are. Um, in fact, um, the uh, in the last five or ten years, um, there's been a joint effort uh on the part of uh, the government there, um, and also um, some of these uh, conservation organizations, to basically uh, initially, you know, the first step is just the catalog where, where these things are found, where you know what are the major major strongholds and what what are the threats that are posed. And so all through the Soviet Far East, at least at least I know in the, fo- the Far East, the Soviet Far East, the, gar- the Russian government, they do have a program right now. Um, in fact, the, the the Wild Salmon Center is involved in some of that. Uh, some of those efforts to uh, to study some of the rivers where they're found and, and study uh, also study more about the biology and life history of these fish. They're really really fascinating fish. You know, they're they're just really special. What's the reproductive age of uh, of a taimen? Uh, one of the questions that came in during the show. Um, I think they're you know they they come. Uh, because they're so long live, they they come real late to maturity, and uh, I don't really, off the top of my head, know exactly how many years it is, but I'm sure it's a, you know, a good number of years compared to let's say a, a, a trout, let's say, um, 
you know, heck, a, a rainbow lives, they say, up here in Alaska, uh, 14 years. But I'm sure that the reproductive age of a time, and that's probably when the time it starts to just uh, get going in terms of uh, mm-hmm. his, his uh, reproductive capacity at that, that point, yeah. Are there any major changes that you see occurring uh, in Russian uh, trips over the next 20 years? Well, I, you know, like anything else, I, you know, the 20-year rule, if you look at – I started guiding up here in Alaska um, oh, 25, close to 25 years ago, and um, the changes I've seen in Alaska in 20 years, you know, that if you apply a 20-year rule to, to just about any place in terms of uh, – you know develop, how the infrastructure develops and, and the amount of pressure. Um, uh, you know it's uh, it's hard to say what 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 we're gonna we're, we're gonna have 20 years from now. But you know one, one of the problems that that I see with uh, with that area that where the time and our family lease in the Soviet Far East is that um, unlike parts of Alaska and, and uh, with with salmon, um, the time and uh, is found is one of his is is you know greatest strongholds the area that that he's found you know like that lower and more uh, country that we fish is, is also a prime area for other resources like uh forests and mineral extraction and stuff like that and so um the the real the real problem i see there is that uh you know as these as those uh industries develop and and there's a call for for that kind of um, resource development that it, it could really impact uh the time and more more so than let's say uh uh, Fisher, you know, trying try to use the analogy between what, what's happened here in Alaska, um, I see that the greater threat to to the time and being of the resource development um, in the areas that that uh, are most sensitive to, you know, where they're they're found in the greatest numbers. They, they're, those are the areas that are also prime areas for for um, resource development. Right, and you're having that problem right now in Alaska. I understand. Well, yeah, there is come to think of it. I was just um, just thinking about that. Uh, uh, that you, I guess you're talking about the pebble mine. Yeah, yeah, that that is a problem. Um, uh, it uh, yeah, ultimately, I think that's that's the main threat to 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 all these uh, uh, cold water fisheries, uh, at least up here. It's not so much the uh, you know, we, we've evolved, uh, you know, certainly fly fishermen have evolved and the fly fishing industry has evolved to where, you know, people by and large can, 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 you know, engage in a lot of their, you know, uh, activity, a lot, a lot of the sport with, with a minimal impact, uh, uh, certainly compared to what, what can happen to, to that resource if, uh, you have large scale uh, open pit mines, you know. For right. Instance. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a real yeah. problem. Well, hopefully, uh, he can learn from our mistakes and uh, not get into some of the traps that we we've, we've gotten ourselves. Yeah, the only problem there, of course, is you know the, the you know the the economic factors that uh, that drive their decisions. They don't have the the environmental uh, awareness and and the luxury of 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 the environmental community that we have over right. here. They take a little bit harder harder line to everything because. Um, you know they're, they're a lot more desperate for economic right. development. Yeah. So. Yeah. Problem. Renee, has there been any um, efforts to? Uh, one of the questions came in while we were live on the show. Uh, any efforts to bring time into North American waters? I'd I'd love to do that. I I've tried. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, quite frankly, um, you would be it would be a lot easier for you to sneak a nuclear bomb into this country, <laughs> at least the state of Alaska. 
than it would be to, to, to try to shift a live salmonid into yeah. the state of Alaska, I'll tell you, because, uh, you know, for one thing, uh, fish and wildlife, uh, you know, those guys are, are at least in, in here, if you try, you know, U.S. Customs here in Anchorage, I don't know what it's like in Seattle or L.A. or some other points of entry, but, man, I'll tell you what, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here in Anchorage, um, like I said, you, you, you have a much better chance of getting a, a, a bomb in here, a nuclear bomb, than, than a live salmon. They, they are on all that stuff, and the permitting and all this other stuff, uh, it would be very, very, very difficult. And also, um, at least from, from the standpoint of the state of Alaska, they have a, a real strong policy of uh, uh, keeping out any invasive uh, species. So. Right. Well, we have that issue everywhere, and, and yeah, it's, it's really a probably the wrong thing to do. But uh, but it, it would be wonderful. We have a lot of rivers in interior uh, Alaska that I think would be ideally suited for um, Siberian Timon, and plus it would be a great boost for tourism, since they they don't have the diversity of fishing in the interior that they have along the coast. They don't have good salmon fishing. As I could just see the the signs of oh, yeah. signs along the highway. Fish fish Joe's in pond, you know for. For Siberian timing, you know, <laughs> right? You know, have a big well, thing painted on the sign. You know. Well, we can only wish, I guess. But, yeah, uh, well, I'd love to. They're they're so. I I you know I I would love to uh, to have some and propagate them over. They're they're, they're really uh, to me. I I you know I just uh, I find them to be most fascinating. Well, for now, I guess we'll have to try to travel to Russia and yes. join you over yes. there. So, yeah. well, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up here. We've run out of time, but when we return, stick with us here, Renee. When we return, we're going to give away that autographed copy of your book, Alaska okay. Fishing. Good. And uh, we're also be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, a Canadian uh, journal. So stay tuned to see if you win. This segment of our show is brought to you by Keeney's Fly Shop in Sacramento, California. Featuring classes on all aspects of fly fishing, Keeney's Fly Shop has an extensive inventory and fly tying department and a friendly, experienced staff whose primary goal is your complete satisfaction. Among their many services, one can book private waters or take advantage of their international travel service. Visit their extensive website at www.keeney.com, that's K-I-E-N-E.com, or call Keeney's Fly Shop at one 800 400 0359. That's 800-400-0359. On our events calendar tonight, we see a casting clinic at the Great Western Fly Fishing Company in Loveland, Colorado. That starts at 10 a.m. on Saturday, October 14th. You can go to the events calendar to Colorado for contact information. And remember, list any fly fishing related events yourself on our events calendar. Each show, we will select one event to highlight. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the events calendar. Well, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section on tonight's show that says, What did you think about this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give give away an autographed copy of uh, Alaska, book, fishing, Alaska the ultimate, fishing, the Angler's, ultimate guide. Angler's Guide. The book is the most comprehensive guide to fishing the 49th state. This deluxe full-color edition covers all Alaska species, methods, and waters with contributions from Alaska's top fishing experts. And if you don't win tonight, you can still order an autographed copy of Renee's book at his website, 
ultimaterivers.com at a reduced price of $25. Normally it's $34.95. So after the show, uh, if, if you don't win, just go to his website, ultimaterivers.com, and you can place your order there. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected on this show's, uh, from this show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show by now, then it's too late. But make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on the chance to win some of the incredible prizes we have to offer. So if you're the lucky winner tonight, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with the information on, on how to receive your gifts. So here it goes, Renee. We're going to draw for your book here, and we'll, we'll just uh, press the magic button. And the winner is Scott LePage in North Carolina. So congratulations, Scott LePage. Great. And uh, I'm sure you enjoy the book. If you haven't been to Alaska, this will make you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a great place to go fishing. So thanks, Renee, for that contribution. We appreciate yeah. it. And we're also giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, Canada's premier fly fishing magazine. And uh, so I'll go ahead and pick the winner for that. And um, Mark Kulikov, Mark Kulikov of, in California. So Mark will um, will get you set up uh, to receive that subscription, and we'll contact both you gentlemen after the show to to get your addresses and so forth that we need to uh, to get the prizes out to you. We can bet that uh, those folks are going to enjoy the the prizes they've won. Renee, uh, I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight, and I want to thank you for teaching us more about the uh, Siberian Taiman and fishing in the wilderness in Russia, and uh, hope that uh, you'll be able to join us again for another show sometime. Yeah, I'd love to, and I, 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 it was a real pleasure for me to, to be here and to be able to share uh, some of this, uh, you know, information about these interesting fish with some with your. Uh, listeners so yeah very exciting yeah well thanks uh renee and on our next broadcast we will be uh which will be on october 18th at 7 p.m mountain 9 p.m eastern uh on that show we'll interview brad beefus and our topic for the show will be carp on the fly uh, carp are a terrific challenge for fly fishers everywhere so listen in and learn all about these elusive fish We'd like to thank R.L. Winston Rod Company, Front Range Anglers, Jaeger's Fly Shop, Dry Fly Outfitters, and Keeney's Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.